Hi, my name is Linda. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 20, 1 through 7. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. The New Testament reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Hi. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found, a, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today is scripture. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The gospel of the Lord." So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the church that you are building here all throughout our city in every different denomination. We thank you for the way that your spirit is calling together the people of God. 
And Lord, this morning as we open the Scriptures, we ask that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, cause our hearts to come alive, to awaken us to Your voice, that this Word would not just be uh, the Word of a person, but but the, the thing that You want to say to us would be clear and would echo in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't normally read a lot of fiction. I've been trying to change that over the last couple of years. My wife is a big fiction reader. We did the, she did the parent Sunday school this morning talking about the power of story to shape character and all of that. This is sort of new for me. I've been reading nonfiction since I could read, pretty much. I mean, I love nonfiction. But I've been trying to, you know, to embrace this, and so because I had uh, my sabbatical this summer, I decided I was going to tackle a large, long piece of fiction, and it was The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> now, I know you've probably seen the movie, and the movie was fine, but the book was amazing. And I decided I was not going to do the abridged version. I was going to get the full thing. But in order to make it through it, I'm a very sort of tactile. I like how something looks and feels. I like the the feel of a good book. So I went to Barnes & Noble. I found a copy of The Count of Monte Cristo that had nice font, good spacing. Can I get an amen? Nice texture of pages, right? I wanted this to feel right. And, uh, and I started early because I knew that there was no way I'd finish it in, just in the summer. So I started somewhere around March, April, just began plodding through, got about 300 pages in. And then during my sabbatical, finished it by the end of July. Hallelujah. Uh, yeah, the 9 a.m. was not very enthusiastic about my accomplishment, but I think it's kind of a big deal, a 1,500-page novel. Um, so I finished that book, and I realized there's such, there's such rich character development. And, and one of the scenes that is so remarkable in this story, and you do see it in the movie, is the scene where this, this prosecutor, it's, his name is spelt like it's Villefort, but I think the French pronunciation is Villefort. Any, anybody? Yep. So Villefort is this ambitious rising magistrate, and he has desires to really advance his career. And this innocent man, the, the one who would eventually become the count, Edmund Dantes, is being accused of being involved in a plot to bring Napoleon back into France. And so, so he's, the, Dantes is, is sitting before Villefort, and he has the power to free him or the power to doom him. And he decides, because of fear and his own father's implication with the Napoleon uh, uh, plot conspiracy, he he decides that the best thing to do for his own career is to get rid of Dantes. And so he sentences him to the Chateau d'If, this ominous prison in a cliff by the edge of a sea, which the movie does depict, right? And, and, And so right there in that moment, you're thinking, oh no, the whole story could have ended in about a hundred pages. <laughs> if the guy had just done the right thing, did he realize that in his judgment, in his words, he would have the power to either send a man's trajectory toward life and freedom or towards misery and imprisonment, imprisonment and eventually revenge and bitterness? Did he know in that moment that he stood in a place of power that he could alter one individual's trajectory? Now, I don't know that on a daily basis if we find ourselves in that, quite that dramatic of a situation. And yet, 
I'm reminded of the famous sermon that C.S. Lewis gave, The Weight of Glory, where he says we're never just dealing with ordinary mortals. He said every person that we come into contact with is either headed for eternal glory or eternal damnation, and perhaps our interactions with them are going to nudge them one way or another. See, in a sense, we are like Villefort. That we stand before people, all the people that we interact with, and our words, our ability to be with, our presence with them has the ability to nudge them one way or another. What do we do with the kind of power that we have? We've been in the series on the life of Abraham through the book of Genesis. This is now week nine of the series. Genesis chapter 20 is where we're going to camp out this morning. And I think this is, uh, to, to recap briefly what we've learned so far, we've learned that sin is tearing God's world apart and that God chose this family to begin his plan to bless the world, to put it all back together again. And yet, the very family that God was going to use to bless the world is actually in need of saving themselves. And so right away in chapter 12, we saw Abraham needing to be saved from Egypt. Shortly after that, we see Lot needing to be saved from other kings. And then, of course, last week, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're wondering how this is all going to work out. Well, chapter 20 is a bit of deja vu. Verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, this wilderness area, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's already had something like this has already happened. Chapter 12, and now years later, here's Abraham doing the same thing. Some commentaries say that even just the ordering of these stories is kind of a literary device to make us kind of reset that we've had this dramatic experience with Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of these cities. And now chapter 20 is almost like back to the start. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Abraham's gone through a lot. He's, he's, he's rescued his uh, nephew Lot. He's experienced intercession before God. He's been an amazing warrior and all of this stuff. And yet here we are and he's doing it again. Back to the same pattern. Sarah, she's my sister, he says. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Now, I couldn't help it, but when I read this text, I heard Andy Garcia's voice in my head. You know the scene in Ocean's Eleven when he's the casino guy and he's just found out that he's been robbed and he answers his cell phone and he goes, Congratulations, you're a dead man. That's how I picture God appearing to Abraham. He's appearing to Abimelech and saying, Abimelech, congratulations, you're a dead man. (laughs) And he says, wait a minute, Lord, what have I done? He says, now Abimelech had not approached her. And so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God goes on and tells Abimelech, listen, this is not just some dude you have here. This man is a prophet. Now, this is significant because this is the first time, this is the first time in the Bible that anybody is called a prophet. The Hebrew word there is navi, the one who speaks. But not just one who speaks, because lots of people speak, but one who speaks on behalf of God. Now, think about this for a moment. 
So far in this story, in the first 19 or so chapters of Genesis, what happens when God speaks? What happens when God speaks? Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be creatures, and there were creatures. Whenever God speaks, something happens. Life emerges. The words of God are words of life, words that bring life. So if we're going to call someone a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God, that means this person speaks life-creating words. So we might say this today as we're wrestling with this text that for our own context today, we might say a prophet is to speak the life-creating word of God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, prophets do other things too. They speak the words of judgment from God. But specifically in this chapter, it's useful to think of it this way, that a prophet speaks, is supposed to speak the life-creating word of God. Abraham, after all, was chosen so that through him, all the families of the world would be blessed. And yet, he almost brings a curse. In fact, this whole story fits, if you're a literature person, you'll appreciate motifs. This story fits a very common motif in the Bible of a devout pagan and a reluctant prophet. A devout pagan and a reluctant prophet. Here's this king who's innocent. Abraham thinks there's no fear of God in the land, but actually Abimelech fears God more than Abraham does. A devout pagan and a reluctant prophet. Say, where do we see that again? Oh, maybe in the book of Jonah. When the people of Nineveh, they're wicked, but they repent. They're more devout than Jonah thought they would be, and he remains more reluctant than he thought he would be. God, why do you have mercy on them? I knew you'd forgive them. (laughs) Devout, pagan, reluctant prophet. Where does this happen in the New Testament? Remember the story of Cornelius in Acts 10? He's this devout Gentile, and he's been giving to the poor and all this stuff. And God sends Peter. Peter, would you go and, and to Cornelius' house and tell him about the good news? And Peter's like, mm, I ain't going over there. Gentile, pagan, eek! <laughs> devout, pagan, reluctant prophet. And if we think through those motifs, not much has changed for the church. There are people who are, quote-unquote, outsiders, and to us, we are the reluctant prophets saying, I'm not going to them. I'm not going to bring blessing to them. There's no fear of God there. I know this old town. I know my neighbors. I know my pagan co-workers. And God's like, wait a minute. What if they are the devout pagan and you are the reluctant prophet? So we have an interest in how this story pans out. Skip down to verse 8. After God has warned Abimelech, it says Abimelech rose early in the morning, which shows how devout he was. He was eager to set this right, called all his servants, told, all, told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Now, if you're the underlining type, underline that phrase, great sin. We're going to come back to it in a moment. You, ought, you have done to me things that ought not be done. This is Abimelech's way of saying, dude, I know that you worship maybe a different way than I worship, but everybody knows this is not cool. This is, like, this is a breach of like any hospitality code of ethics. 
You don't do this. This is things that are not to be done. And Abimelech says to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? See, the other Hebrew word for prophet, Nabi is the one who, who says, who speaks. But the other Hebrew word is the one who sees. So a prophet in the scripture is someone who sees something and therefore says something. And Abimelech has been told that this man's a prophet. And so he's saying, all right, well, I'm hearing you say some deceptive and untrue things. So what did you see? Because I know your sayer is off. I wonder if your seer is off too. What did you see? What kind of a prophet are you, basically? It's a polite way maybe of saying, what kind of a prophet are you? And this Abraham's response Abraham said, well, I I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. And and, oh, by the way, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place at which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Honey, do me this one favor. Fear makes us do funny things. For Abraham, fear caused him to rationalize his behavior. For Abraham, fear caused him to rationalize his behavior. I did this because I thought. Fear psychologically leads us back into self-preservation mode. Fear is activated because we have perceived a threat, even if it's not an actual threat. Fear made Abraham rationalize his behavior. Well, listen, there's no fear of God in here. The world is going downhill. Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. I've got to do this. I know it's not right. I know it doesn't, I know it contradicts all of my values, but I have to do this because I know what's coming is worse. That doesn't apply. That was just Abraham, right? (laughs) Fear caused Abraham to rationalize his behavior. Fear also caused Abraham to jeopardize someone else's future. Fear caused Abraham to jeopardize someone else's future. The obvious one is Sarah. Poor Sarah. The second time, here she is a victim again of someone else's foolishness. I mean, this could be a whole separate sermon on how many of us, how many of you have been the victim of someone else's foolishness. I didn't choose this. Imagine if you're Sarah. said, I didn't choose this. This guy is being an idiot again. And I am dragged along for the ride. Abraham jeopardized someone else's future. Whose future will you mortgage for your present? Whose peace will you rob to give you comfort? Whose future will you ignore so that your present can be just the way you like it. Fear causes us to jeopardize somebody else's future. Somebody else's future is at stake, but Abraham can't see it. I got to do what I got to do, man. This phrase, great sin, I told you to underline it, because it only shows up three times in the Old Testament. It's not just an expression like, you made me almost do something super bad. It's not like that. It's a particular Hebrew phrase that only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Right here, when Abraham almost causes Abimelech great sin. 
Generations later, when Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai and doesn't come back down and Aaron builds a golden calf, it says, and Aaron caused the people of Israel to commit a great sin. And then generations after that, when there's been King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then the kingdom splits in two, and there's this rebel king, insurrection uh, king as a result of an insurrection, his name is Jeroboam, and he sets up a false place of worship in Bethel and in Dan, and he builds two golden calves. And it says, and Jeroboam caused Israel to commit great sin. A king, a priest, and a prophet. There are no more institutions in Israel other than that of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And all three of them nearly cause or do cause great sin. Great sin. The people of God, the people who are supposed to carry blessing into the world, the people through whom God is going to make it all right again, the people who are supposed to be carriers of shalom are instead causing great sin? How's that work? How does that happen? Fear makes us do funny things. And I wonder for us, what prevents us from being a prophetic people? What prevents the church? If we truly are, if this really is not just the story of Abraham, but the story of us, if this really is part of our vocation as the people of God, that we are carry, carry along with us the calling of Abraham to bring blessing, then in a sense, we are a prophetic people. So what prevents us from being a prophetic people? What prevents us from speaking blessing into the world? Maybe like Abraham we too have a self-preservation instinct. A lot of people are worried, rightfully so, what kind of country our children will inherit. It's a good concern. But I'll tell you my number one concern is what kind of church my children will inherit. Because I know the church, the church will go on. The church will go on in every age, in every corner of the globe, to every tribe and every tongue. And I will not let the church be compromised for the sake of securing a nation's future. Because then we're no longer a prophetic voice. Then we're no longer a prophetic people. But if we're going to speak a blessing we got to let go of the self-preservation instinct. We can't let this thing say, oh, it's, it's a big bad world out there. It's just so awful. It's just so terrible. It's just so, it's godless. And think about it. Abraham had just witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not crazy for him to be scared of the sin of Abimelech. It's like, dude, I just saw this. It doesn't work out so well. So like, maybe we just got to do what we got to do. It is so tempting for Christians to throw their hands up. I, I don't know. I don't know. But the Spirit of God says to us, you are in the world for the sake of the world. You are in your neighborhood for the sake of your neighborhood. You are in your places of work for the sake of that place of work. There is no place that is God forsaken as long as the church remains there. As long as the church remains there. But man, it's so easy to turn inward. And not just, let's zoom it in. Let's bring this closer to home, literally home. 
As a parent with four children, it is so easy for me to be consumed in my life, my world. I confess I'm guilty so many times of living around my children, but not truly being with them. Do you know this? Is this just a me thing? Is this a you thing? You know? Where I'm, they're, they're there, I'm there, but man, my head is somewhere else, and my mind is somewhere else. And I have a chance for a few years to speak blessing to them, but instead I just want to get them out of the way, right? Can I, am I confessing alone here, or are you with me in this sin, okay? <laughs> a, couple weeks, or, yeah, a couple weeks ago, you heard from Dr. Michelle Anthony. She's the pastor, executive pastor over family ministry and children's and all of that at New Life North, and she's an amazing woman, and it's her curriculum that we use here at New Life uh, in, in various forms, and I was talking to her this week about what the power of a parent to even speak a blessing in our children's lives. Now, sometimes we don't do this because we think, well, I don't know, how does that go? What's the exact words? Are there hand motions? I mean, how do, how, what do, I don't know what to do. And I love how Michelle makes it so easy to apply. In fact, we've got these magazines out in the front called Homefront Magazine. New Life puts it out, and Michelle is the, is the one in charge of it. And there's sections in there that just give you a different blessing each month that you can use, a different practice that you can use. But she has this book called Becoming a Spiritually Healthy Family, and she, she outlines, she showed me the pages in it, where it just, it just maps out very simply ways of bringing blessing even over our children. One of them takes the form of admiration. You see a child doing something that you admire and you say, I like that you are so helpful. I mean, think about why is that so hard, right? It's so much easier to say, why can't you clean up your room? Why is it so hard to take the plate from the table to the sink? Sorry, I'm just really, it's coming out of me now. <laughs> but it's much harder, it's much harder to just say admiration. I like how you do that. That's so great. I like how you're so helpful. Or maybe a word of affirmation where you say, I see God giving you a heart for those in need. What a beautiful thing to say. I see God. And by the way, I think many of these things translate beyond parents and children. It works in church too. Works with our peers. Works with roommates. Works with uh, co-workers. I mean, imagine how the spirit of competition and jealousy will be broken at a place of work when you say to someone, man, I, I see you doing well at that. I affirm this. I see how God is giving you a heart to serve on one of our 12 Sunday teams. That's awesome, guys. Sorry, just to sneak that in. Thirdly, <laughs> thirdly, appreciation. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate that so much. Man, thank you for thinking of this. We're so quick to catch people doing wrong, but how often do we catch them doing something well? Thank you for doing Thank you for being encouraging. Thank you for being you. Anticipation. This is, this is, I really like this. You're going to bring a lot of people joy today with your loving and caring ways. Imagine sending someone out the door. Like, man, you're going to do great today. In, in a way, this is how we end every service here at church, right? It's to send you out with a blessing. The Lord's going to go with you this week. But imagine parents even saying that to your kids. If, if they're in school at home or if they're in school, beginning the day, the Lord's going to use you to let someone feel loved today. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start anticipating that. I'm going to start thinking about that. Yeah, he might. Last weekend, we had the City Serve weekend, and, and I'm so thrilled about it. I, I love that 1,200 people from over 25 churches came together and served at 40 projects and were able to give our community 4,700 hours of community service. I love it. It's amazing, and it's just one weekend. And it would 
be easy to sort of do that or have done that and check the box and be like, whew, been a blessing to my city. So thankful. So awesome. Now back to me. Which is why the organizers of the City Serve event brought in a speaker on Friday night, the worship night before the day of serving. A guy named Dave Runyon who's up in Denver who started a movement called the Neighboring Movement. was a big part of that. And I love how Dave challenged us. He said, man, he's like, I've been a pastor. I've been in Christian ministry. And I've had ways of justifying how I knew everybody and was doing something for everybody else except my actual neighbors. And of course, we know that neighbor, loving your neighbor is metaphor, can be a metaphor to refer to so many things. People in need, people, all of those categories. But surely it also includes your actual neighbors. And so just, I'm sitting there in the service on Friday night, and Dave's got this little refrigerator magnet, kind of cheesy, but you know, and right in the middle of, don't tell Dave I said that, right in the middle is like you, and then there's like eight houses around you, and he said, how many of us can name the names of the eight neighbors that are immediately around us? Like, I stopped at about four, and I had to skip a few houses to get to that. <clears throat> like, man, what is going on? And I wonder sometimes if we're so in it that we're like, in our car, going to the next Bible study and the next prayer meeting and the next thing at church and the next way to serve and the next ministry thing. And it's so great. And God's like, would you just, just open your eyes? Right there. The dude mowing his lawn, the person raking their leaves, like right there. You're living in Abimelech's land so that you can bring a blessing. You're living in this place so that you can bring a blessing. Now, if you're like me, you know that we've come pretty darn close to messing it up. It's like, yeah, I know I'm living in Abimelech's land. Yeah, I know that. But man, why, how do I always... It's like, what if God put me in this neighborhood? And what if God put me with these people, with these coworkers? What, and what if I'm just too scared? And I don't mean, please don't hear me saying that you need to, tomorrow morning, you know, bust out the old, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going conversation. I'm not saying that. I hope you understand that I'm encouraging us to think about ways that we can carry and speak blessing. And if you've almost derailed it, if you've made a mess of it, be of good cheer today. Abraham almost made a royal mess of it. Almost totally derailed it. I mean, here it is, the promise, the promise that God was going to give him, it's almost completely derailed. Think about it. Sarah almost derailed it by giving Hagar to Abraham. She's like, dude, I can't have kids. You take Hagar. He's like, okay, that sounds good. God's like, eh, not what I want to do. Now Abraham almost derails it by giving Sarah to a king. And you have to, I'm not trying to be funny about this, but just think about this for a moment. Just a few chapters ago, Sarah laughs because she's like, yeah, it ain't happening. I know the woman's stuff and I'm past it. It's over. And now something's happening to Sarah because Abraham's nervous that a king who has a harem wants to add a 90-year-old woman to his harem. I mean, several of the commentaries were like, Sarah's experiencing some kind of revitalization, you know? It's the commentary's language. I, I would say, I think Sarah's getting her groove back, you know? Something is happening. And Abraham almost derails it by saying, you go ahead. But God intervenes. God intervenes. Verse 6, listen to how personal God takes this. God said to him in a dream, in a dream. In other words, if the prophet won't speak, God will. 
If the prophet won't speak, God will. God's like, Abraham, you won't speak? Fine, I'll speak in a dream. And God shows up in a dream and he says, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God's like, man, I take this personally. I'm in the game. I'm not the God who wound, up, wound this up and set a plan in motion and said, let's see how that works. He's like, I'm in it. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I know, and I kept you. God intervenes personally. Why? Just for Abimelech's sake or Sarah's sake or Abraham. No, God intervenes so that Abraham can. He says, look, have Abraham pray for you and everyone's going to live. Here's what I want us to sit with today, church. That God intervenes not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Towards the end of the chapter, it says, verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It was like there was this darkness descending on that whole place. And when Abraham began to pray, boom, life came. God intervened not just for Abraham's sake, but for the sake of Abimelech. God saved you, not just so you can go to heaven and have your passport stamped for Jesus' land. God saved you for the sake of the world. God saved you for the sake of the world. This is how Paul says it. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It's like, well, I'm not part of Abraham's family. No, no, no. Paul says, look, if you're in Jesus, you get the blessing of Abraham. Okay, what is the blessing of Abraham? That we might receive the promised Spirit. The Spirit. And what is the Spirit for? Luke 4, our gospel reading today, it says Jesus got up in the synagogue and he unrolled the scroll to what the prophet Isaiah says. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to feel goosebumps when I worship. Have an encounter. Good, that's good, but that's not what it says. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me so that every time I sing a worship song, I can just say, oh, it's so great, I love Jesus. That's good, but it's not what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, church, if the Holy Spirit in you is not good news for the poor and the oppressed and the people who are broken and hurting, then it's not really good news. It's not really good news. If the Holy Spirit being in you is so you could have nice Jesus feelings, then that's not it. See, Luke records this as Jesus saying, this is what the Holy Spirit is upon me to do. But it's also Luke in volume 2, known as the book of Acts, who will say, the Spirit comes upon the church, and the church goes about doing all the things that Jesus did. It's, in fact, the church was doing all, all of these things so much so that in Antioch, they come up with a nickname for these followers of Jesus. You know what they call them? Christians. You know what that word means? Little Christ. And you know what that means? Little ones who are anointed by the Spirit. 
Christ, you know, we've been over this, not Jesus' last name, right? His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ, and they had a little baby Jesus, you know? You know that. We've, we've been over this. Christ is a title that means the anointed one. And these people, these people in Antioch who are outsiders, who are like Abimelech, look at these followers of Jesus in their life. Oh, my goodness. The same anointing that was on Jesus is on these people. Now, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces and in your homes if you went around and people were like, oh, man, these people have something. These people carry something. These people carry a blessing that the Holy Spirit is given to you for the sake of your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, for their sake and not yours alone. The blessing of God, God's blessing comes to us so that it might come through us. God's blessing comes to us so that it might flow through us. This morning as we're going to pray, I want us to imagine, I want us to awaken our own hearts to say, Holy Spirit, fill me, not just so I can make it through the day, but so I can carry a word of blessing to someone else. Now, I know you might say, well, Glenn, I, I don't have my stuff together. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, maybe, maybe that'll be like phase 2.0 for me because my life's a mess. I want to say to you, Abraham's life was a mess, right? You say, well, I got problems, I got issues, I got stuff, but you know what? You also got the Holy Spirit. You also have the Holy Spirit. And you can choose to live every day and say, oh, I'm just, I, all I'm aware of is my issues. Like, great, let's continue to let the Lord bring health and healing. Like, let's continue both and, right? But also remember that because the Holy Spirit is in you, it's enough to let you speak a word of life to someone. Maybe a word of comfort out of the same pain that you're feeling. Maybe a word of hope. Maybe a word of joy. How would it change each day to think we are prophets? We are prophetic people. We carry with us, because we carry the Holy Spirit, we carry the power to bless, to speak life. It's the name of Pastor Brady's new book. Great, very helpful book. A great way to sum up our call.